Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Good morning. Sermon text is uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Let's pray together before we get going. Father God, it is good to gather this morning to worship you. God, it is a humbling reality to be called sons and daughters of the living God but you made a way through Jesus and called us into your eternal family. God, I pray this morning that your spirit would move powerfully as we worship, that this community would live into the reality that we are citizens of your eternal kingdom. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, well, good morning. I already feel like I'm gonna cough, that's a great start. Um, lots of new faces. I'm Patrick, uh, one of the pastors here. Uh, the big news this week is it rained, right? That was, uh, I mean, Cheryl and I, you know, we, we keep hearing rumors of rain. Um, we we're like, sure. So we went and sat out on the deck and the next thing happened, it was raining sideways, sideways rain, blowing everything through our yard. It was chaos. And then the hail came and I was very thankful. So that's that. Um, But if you are new, we've been walking through the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, and I think this is our seventh week, and we are in chapter two, verses three through 11, as you just heard. And I'm quite certain that most of you have heard these verses before. They are pretty common verses. And after last week, when we talked about the power and the importance of the simple truths in Scripture, it's fitting that these verses highlight another kind of overarching truth that is throughout Scripture, a very simple truth, namely that gospel priorities 
The, the characteristics of God's kingdom are diametrically opposed to the priorities of this world. Some would say that Jesus came and turned the wisdom of the world on its head, right? That, he, that it was backwards, his teaching and his life. But I would argue that what he really did was turn everything right side up. He turned it right side up. He came into a broken world ruled by sin, in bondage to death and decay and said, this is not how you were made to live. This is not how God created you to find joy. I have come to make a way for you to experience that joy. But everything I say and everything I do is gonna seem crazy. It's gonna go against the wisdom of the world and the desires of your flesh. And ultimately, you're gonna kill me for it. But it was his humility unto death that purchased our redemption. And it's this very humility of Jesus that Paul uses to implore us to live humble lives together as citizens of the gospel. Jesus didn't just show up and teach really well and really compellingly about humility. He came to exemplify perfect humility. And it is the humility through which our redemption was purchased. As we talked about last week, these simple truths are not hard to understand, but everything in our flesh and in our culture is going to push against them. The right side up reality of God's kingdom flies in the face of the world's values and the world's priorities. I mean, just look at the divergence between what scripture calls us to and what the world in our flesh value and pursue. In Matthew 20, Jesus said that in his kingdom, the first will be last and the last will be first. That's weird. It's backwards. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Backwards. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That he chose the, the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And we read in 2 Corinthians that Jesus was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we would become rich. And in our text today, we read that Jesus is God, but he emptied himself and made himself nothing. He took on flesh and walked among us as a servant from ultimate power to ultimate humility. This is the downward mobility of gospel economics. Right? What leader on the planet actively makes themselves less actively sets aside power so that others might have life and joy, so that others might be empowered. Jesus is the God who became a man so that he could die for us. This is the right side up reality of God's kingdom, the kingdom we have been called into in its lunacy to the world. But if we don't grasp this reality, we can never embrace the simple call in our text this morning to be humble. 
Because as much as we know about God and about his word and the characteristics of his kingdom, every person in this room has a really big dose of the world pumping through their psyche. We are often blind to the kingdom God is building among us. And we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to this truth, to the gospel reality, because everything in our prideful flesh and everything in this world is opposed to the message of the gospel. It is opposed to humility. When Jesus said, it's better to give than receive, he was talking about a lot more than Christmas gifts. He was talking about giving of ourselves, giving of our lives. And that's exactly what he did, what he exemplified. So the title of this morning's sermon, they always have titles, I just never tell you. It's weird, I don't know why. But today I am, I'm letting you on the inside. The title is Joy in Dethroning Self. It's obviously about humility. And there's nothing that could be more countercultural than humility. It's not something that comes natural. But if we want to experience the joy of Christ, then we must wage war against our pride. We must fight against the unending pressure of our own flesh and the world, which constantly tells us to live our lives for our own glory and for our own pleasure, and for our own purposes. The theologian John Stott says, pride is our greatest enemy. And if you don't like theologians because they're too smart, James, the book of the Bible, chapter four, verse six, God doesn't like it either. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this battle against pride is painful. It's painful, it's messy, it is unceasing. And our only hope of victory is found in Christ through the blessing of the indwelling spirit that is ours because of his humility and his love. In our text this morning, Paul talks about the necessity of humility within the church. He exhorts us to renounce the pride in our hearts and to live our lives for others. It flows directly from last week's conversation about unity because humility, without humility, unity is impossible. Without humility, we cannot have unity. So in verses three and four, Paul is exhorting us to be humble. But then in six through 11, he gives us this illustration of Christ's humility and Christ's exaltation. And if we're gonna grow in humility as the body of Christ, we must understand the incarnation. We must understand the death of Jesus. This is the gospel. It is perfect humility. Christ humbled himself perfectly. He died sinlessly so that we might live lives that reflect his humility and his love. And we're gonna begin actually in verse six because if we don't understand what Christ has done for us, we can't see the power of Christ at work in us. So in verse six, Paul is speaking about Christ saying, though he was in the form of God, 
or if you like the NIV, being in very nature God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And these verses describe a truth that is at the very core of the Christian faith. Jesus existed in perfect unity with the Father in heaven. Perfect unity. But as we read in Ephesians 1, in love, God had a plan of redemption for us before the foundation of the world. And that plan was that Jesus would humble himself for us. Not, not because we deserve anything. Not because we earned or would earn anything, but because of his great love and his grace. So Jesus left the glory of heaven and took on flesh. He humbled himself by being born in the likeness of man. That is, he became like us in the flesh. He was fully man and he was also fully God. And this is a big theological truth here. Jesus was fully God and fully man. When the text says he made himself nothing, it, it doesn't mean that he gave up his divinity, but rather he willingly gave up the status and the privilege that was his in heaven. And he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he didn't cling to the divine power for his advantage, but he remained fully God in his full humanity. And this has huge theological implications. Jesus had to be fully man so that he could live the sinless life that we could not live. But he also had to be fully God so that he could defeat sin and death by his perfect sacrifice. So Paul is really just pointing out the humility of Jesus. But these verses about Jesus' example are rich with theological truth. The main point Paul is making is follow Jesus in his humility. He humbled himself even unto death so that we might follow him in life. And then verses nine through 11, therefore, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is gospel economics. This is what Jesus taught on earth. In Matthew 23, 11, Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So it is fitting that the one who humbled himself most deeply, the one whose obedience cost the greatest imaginable self-denial should be the most exalted. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The, 
confidence we have in this fight is that Jesus was in the fight long before we were. The ultimate victory has been secured in Jesus. It is because of what Jesus did on the cross that we can fight for joy. His humanity paved the way for our joy. His humility. Did I say humanity? That too. Very theologically true. His humility paved the way for our joy. And if we don't grasp what Christ has done, if the gospel doesn't move us to worship and to magnify and to proclaim Christ's goodness, then joy will always evade us. It is only in view of Christ's humility that we have any hope of understanding Paul's call to humility for us in verses three and four. Paul says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's a tall order, right? That's big. This type of humility is obviously not something we can produce in and of ourselves. And if we look at these verses in isolation and and miss what Christ has done for us, we will be driven either to despair or madness at the magnitude of holiness that is required by God. We are called to live out this humility, but our source of power to live this out is Christ. It is his humility for us. It is only because of him and through him that we can understand what it is to be humble. And it is only through him that we can walk in this humility. So before we flesh out verses three and four, we need to look at the promise we have in verse five. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's yours. This mind that he describes in verse three and four is yours in Jesus. You you already have it. You have full access and power to live out this reality because of Christ. Just like we read in 2 Peter chapter one, his divine power has granted us all things. And in the Greek, that means everything, right? It's, It's complex, all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have them. This is a promise and we must believe and trust that he gives us this mind and he gives us this power. But that doesn't mean it's easy, right? Peter just after that said, make every effort. It's not easy. It doesn't mean we don't have to fight for it but we are fighting through and with the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit is empowering us. See, the key to living verses three and four is to be saturated in verses six through 11, to be overwhelmed by the humility of Christ for us. We must continually be looking to Jesus. We strive for humility because it is already in us, because Christ is already in us. It is part of our identity as citizens of the gospel. Christ in you, 
as Paul says in Colossians 1.27, is the hope of glory. This is the mindset we have in Christ. This is how we can talk about the joy of dethroning self. Joy and humility. Because there is only one Lord and Savior of your life, and it's not you. It's not you. There is joy in knowing that the one true Lord of Lords reigns on the throne of your heart. Because if we're claiming lordship over our own life, then humility makes no sense, right? You showed up in the wrong place here. But when we see that Jesus Christ, the creator, sustainer, and redeemer of life, the God who exemplified humility is for us, he is Lord. When we see that in him is our only hope of, in life or death, he's our only hope for joy, then we can gladly lay down our claims as Lord of our life because he's worth it. He has our joy in mind. And just to be clear, just in case, while I would implore and encourage everyone to see Jesus as the one true Lord. His Lordship is not dependent upon our acceptance of him as Lord. Keep that in mind. There's this horribly overused phrase in modern Christianity, and I'm probably gonna shame someone by even saying it, but it gets to the heart of humanity's blindness to its own pride. The phrase is, sorry already, I'm gonna make Jesus the Lord of my life, right? I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, right? Half of the people in the room have said it. I'm gonna make Jesus the Lord of my life. And listen, I get the sentiment, but it's way off base. Really, you are going to make Jesus Lord. You're gonna crown Jesus as Lord? You're gonna anoint him as Lord? Sounds more like your Lord right? And Jesus should be thankful that you invited him into your little kingdom. We don't make Jesus anything. We recognize his lordship and his salvation, and we humble ourselves before the Lord of all creation. And humility before the Lord Jesus isn't optional, right? You don't get a choice. It's just a matter of timing. Because Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The only question is, will we confess as those who stand firmly on the blood of Christ for our salvation? Or we, will we bow before the glory of the Lord in judgment? Every knee will bow. The Lord of all creation humbled himself and took on flesh and he died so that we might have life. And the humility Paul is calling us to walk in here in verses three and four isn't to earn God's favor. It is a response to the humility of Jesus. It's the mind and the heart of Jesus being lived through us so that we as a church might present to the world the, the glory of Jesus in our humility. And what does Paul say that this humility looks like? What is this mind that we've been given? 
He says, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count or regard others more significant than yourself. So we get some really big topics, but if we want to talk about simple truths in scripture, this is, this is a verse that will keep us busy for a long time, right? Do nothing from rivalry, nothing from conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. How's that for countercultural? So the world's way of resolving conflict is to teach you to stand up for your rights, to be assertive, to fight for what you want or what you deserve, to have proper self-esteem. Love yourself a little more. And that voice of the prideful flesh is so strong that much of Western culture has bought in. Much of Western church culture has bought in. Pastors stroking the ego of their people with feel-good, unbiblical sermons, while the people return the favor by boosting the ego of the corporation. I mean, the church. <laughs> All driven by man's love of self. But as we talked about at the beginning, the economics of the true gospel are opposite those of the world. Paul says, do nothing from rivalry, nothing from conceit. And, and this word rival, rivalry literally means selfish ambition. It's like campaigning for a political office. It is building a following for yourself, building an identity for yourself. And it means pushing others down on your way up. That's just how the world works, right? That's why it's called selfish ambition. It's about your advancement. It's about what you desire. It's about what you want. And it's easy to convince ourselves that our ambition is worth it, that it serves some greater good, that the ends justify the means. We may say some unkind things about that friend when they're not around because we feel a little more powerful in that situation now. It feels good for a short time. And we have to throw a few coworkers under the bus to make ourselves look a little bit better to get that promotion. But we really need the money. We're gonna, we're gonna give to the church. So I, we're throwing them under the bus for Jesus. That's how the world works. It's the same word Paul used back in chapter one, verse 17, when he talked about these people who preached out of rivalry with self-glorifying motives. They used the gospel to advance their agenda. It was a tool to promote themselves and their selfish ambition. So that's what rivalry is. Sounds horrible, right? The second word Paul uses is conceit, literally vain glory, to be puffed up with a sense of our own importance, to think that we're God's gift to humanity, that the most important things in life are those that serve our enjoyment, that serve our plans, that serve our agenda. And we're not just talking about athletes and rock stars here, they're easy targets. But if we're honest, a lot of people walk through life as if they were a rock star, right? And you all just thought about somebody else, I know. That's what we do, right? I think, Maybe we all have a little rock star living down in us somewhere. In the flesh, of course. It's just a little rock star down there. Tiny dancer, maybe. 
when our plans are too important, our time is too valuable, or when our opinions or our desires are forced upon those around us. I mean, we really want to serve and love and be humble. This just isn't the best time right now. It's a little inconvenient. See, the truth is that if we turn the lens on ourselves, it quickly becomes evident that the seeds of rivalry, the seeds of conceit, they run deep in our flesh. The agenda of our flesh is always about the self. That's it. But Paul says, do nothing from rivalry, nothing from conceit. Instead, with humility, we are to regard others more important than ourselves. Wow. That's hard. That's, I want to say that's un-American. Think of others more than yourself? That's humility. And the common understanding of humility is, is that like, it means thinking less of yourself, like beating yourself down so humble, right? It's like that. It is, it's kind of taken as this devaluing of your personhood. But really, that's just our pride trying to throw out another reason to not be humble. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Rather, it is thinking of yourself less. Big difference. So the person that goes around always belittling themselves and beating themselves down, they're no less self-consumed than the guy that, you know, flexes his biceps every time he walks by a mirror or the selfie princess, right? Self-loathing is not humility. It's just another form of self-centeredness. It is a fixation on yourself. To live in humility is to live in the reality that everything we have and everything we are is because of the grace of Jesus. When we see this grace in our lives and we look at Christ as our only hope in life and death, his humility will permeate our souls. It will lead us to joyful humility. When we stop consuming ourselves with ourselves, we begin to see the grace of God and to value other people as Christ values them. Paul says, look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So think about how do you care for yourself? Pretty darn good, right? How do you care for your finances, for your home, for your family? This is how you are to look out for those in the community. Care for them like you care for yourself. This is what Paul is calling us to. Because conflict is virtually always the product of someone pursuing their own interest over someone else's. It's their pride. This goes for our marriages and for our friendships and for work. We want our way. We want our opinions. And we're not gonna give up till we get them. I mean, have you ever heard of conflict being the product of two people who are incredibly humble and only looking out for the interests of the other person? That's weird. You could probably come up with an example, maybe, I don't know, but it's not normal. You see, what Paul is calling us to in this text is remarkably simple and remarkably difficult. 
But as we discussed before, we have been given all things for life and godliness. The spirit of Jesus is alive in us and leading us to humility, but we still have to fight. So let me close things down with a few simple questions for consideration. How would things go for us if rather than sitting around thinking about how no one has encouraged me this week, how no one seems to care for me this week, feeling like I'm on an island, what would happen if we chose to encourage? We chose to sit down and think about those people that might not be cared for, and we reach out and we encourage them. What would happen? Or how would we relate differently in our homes with our spouses, parents, kids, whoever, if instead of insisting that that family member thought like us and understood us, we spent more time trying to understand them, empathizing with them, listening to them? How would you relate differently at work if your position or your advancement came second to the need of those who you work with? How would our attitudes towards others change if we maintained the mind of Christ and did not demand our rights, but gladly laid them down, serving others, sacrificing for others, humbling ourselves before others, even if it comes at a cost? As I said, simple truths are difficult. They're kind of intrusive. That's why I saved it for the end. They go, go against every fiber of our flesh, every ounce of the wisdom of this world. And while everything in us recoils at the idea of living like this, the spirit in us says, yes. This is the mark of God's kingdom. This is what it means to be my people. There is joy in following Jesus who humbled himself and laid down his life for us. And we have to trust Jesus that the joy is on the other side of humility. My prayer for this community is that we would rest in Christ's perfect sacrifice. Trusting that we have been given all power in him to fight for the promised joy of humility. That we would be a community that reflects the humility of Jesus. The battle that we face against the power of pride and selfishness will be a daily battle. Daily. It requires us to fix our eyes on Christ daily to encourage and support and admonish one another with love daily. It will not be easy, but in Christ, we have confidence that the victory has been won. So let me close out with Paul's words one more time. He says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father God, we, we ask that you would make us a people who are bold in humility. God, a people who lay our lives down for others with joy, with our eyes fixed on the perfect humility of Jesus and all the promises that flow through him. God, empower us today by your spirit to wage war against our prideful flesh to daily turn from our pride and turn once again to you and trust in the fullness of salvation and life that has been promised in Jesus. To you be all the glory and the power and the honor. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamblin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org.